When I made it to my home place, I found triumph of the will. Where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a hill. This is Fortress on a Hill with Henry, Danny, Kagan, Giovanni, Shiloh, and Manisha. Good day, everyone. We're revisiting the film, This Is Not A War Story, which tracks a ragtag group of combat veterans in New York whose anti-war art, poetry, and papermaking keep them together. Despite the specter of the French suicide and the ever-crystallizing fact that healing from war is sometimes an impossible mission, the film focuses on the moral injury and follows Isabel, a young Marine combat vet fresh from deployment for one of America's forever wars in the Middle East, struggling to readjust to life back home where she finds the community of veterans with the same struggles. Isabel's story and that of the veterans in the film is just one of many stories of combat veterans returning home from America's imperialist wars abroad, where they are left to struggle with their own demons on their own. Oh, at the beginning of uh, last year, we did an interview about this film. And just to recap, uh, I'll sh we're going to present a trailer called on her story. It just didn't get it. Coming off from a war, you know, been morally justified being a part of. It's not easy to live with. They don't even know that with watch. Yeah. Thank you for your service. If a kid wants to die, he's going to find him. Are you thanking me for blowing up the school or for blowing up the hospital? Thanking me for slaughtering a family and mom and dear. Thank you for MST, for burn pits. I know you're not thanking me for being a hero. I was a pawn. Show me how to fucking live. Nothing about this is easy, okay? Think you could tell me your story? Uh, this film, this is not a war story. Um, they did several screenings across the country, uh, won several uh, awards uh, uh, and uh, screaming, including um, um, and is now streaming in HBO um, on HBO. So joining us for joining us is I have three veterans here that are starting the film. Uh, one is Jen Berry. He is a poet and author. Which books include Earth Songs, Life and War After War, and other poems, and co-editor Winning Hearts and Minds after po War Poems, Winning Hearts and Minds, War Poems by veteran by Vietnam veterans, a U.S. Army veteran of Vietnam, he coordinates war writers workshop and programs for veterans and family members in northern New Jersey. He's presented poetry readings at the Garland Art Dutch Poetry Festival. New York City Poetry Festival, Puffin Cultural Forum, and other venues. His artwork has appeared in the Brennan Country Courthouse Gallery and Jersey City Grounds for Sculptural Art Gallery and other galleries from Washington, D.C. to Reno, Nevada. Uh, for more information on Jen, go to www.jenberry.net. We also have with us Kevin Basil. Basil? 
Uh, Kevin is a writer and musician living near Ithaca, New York. He was in, he was in the U.S. Army from 2003 to 2008, uh, twice deployed to Iraq since 2013. He has facilitated numerous hand paper, paper making work workshops with frontline arts. He has also taught many writing workshops for veterans with war writers. He is a member of About Face, formerly Iraq Veterans Against the War and Veterans for Peace. To read his writing and hear his music, visit www.kevinbasil, that is B-A-S-L dot com. Um, and we also have Talia Lugasi, who co-wrote and directed the feature film Descent, starring Rosario Dawson, which premiered in comp competition at the Tribeca Film Festival and was released theatrically by Warner Independent. Despite an uh, NC-17 rating. Uh, Descent was championed by the New York Times as an essential to see vividness, a vividness never seen in American film. Talia is a full-time assistant professor at Screen Studies at Eugene Lang College of Liberal Arts, the new school in New York City. She is also a member of Actors Studio Playwrights and Directors Unit and began studying filmmaking at the NYU TIT at the age of 15, she was directed. She had directed numerous short films, environmentals, PSAs, and frack action, water defense, Mark Ruffalo, and food and water, water watch. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Um, how are you guys feeling? Very well, thanks. thanks. So, so talk about this film. It's been uh, over a year now that you, uh, uh, released this film. Uh, you guys did several um, film screen across the country. I believe you guys did a few um, film screening in 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 uh, Colorado, man, Colorado, in California, uh, New York. Uh, we did one here in in, in Texas, San Antonio. Um, talk about that experience because you in those film screening, you actually actually talk to the audience as well, right? Uh, I can answer that. Um, unfortunately, we didn't have as much interaction uh, with audiences as, as we would have liked because the film um, was uh, was circulating film festivals at the height of the pandemic, the COVID uh, pandemic. So a lot of these festivals were online and um, we did have um, really healthy conversations that way. Um, but it wasn't until uh, towards the, the end of um, 2021 that we were able to screen in person. Yeah. How was that? Um, it was, you know, it was, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the screening, um, in San Antonio and, and actually yes. uh, you all were in person and, um, I believe myself and another veteran, Eli Wright, uh, joined that remotely, mm -hmm. but that was one of the best ones, um, in terms of, um, getting a chance to talk to the audience afterwards. I remember, um, uh, a female veteran, um, standing up full of absolutely racked with emotion and saying, you know, thank you for making a film that spoke my soul. And that's, for God's sake, that stays with me all the time. I mean, that's, you know, that's, um, that's why you make the film. Yeah. Well, being in person with it is, is essential. I mean, I wish we could have done it more, you know. And both Kevin and Jen, right, both were in the film. Um, and what's, what's interesting about this film is that you have you're combat veterans, right? And you have combat veterans from past wars and, and current wars. Uh, they were generational. Um, and 
and their stories were similar, right? So I wanted to go to Kevin and Jen to, you know, what was, what was your experience in, in doing this film and, 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 and pretty much, uh, um, you know, expressing your, you know, expressing your, because you as expressing your, your experience in actual in, in, in camera and, and how does that feel? How, how was that, that experience? Um, well, what you see in the film is, is an accurate representation of, of, you know, what a workshop looks like. Um, and yeah, like, I, I guess the, the process of acting and, you know, preparing to, to be into the film, I get pretty bad stage fright. So I, I, I think like one of the ways that I feel or that I dealt with it for the film was to sort of um, present myself as a character, right? I was myself, but I was very much like, at, like a, a, a version of myself who I wanted to be. And, and that was really empowering in a way. So I, I appreciated that about the experience. How about you, Jen? Yeah, I was uh, really worried that I'd have to uh, remember what's in a script because I, I can't remember things very well any longer. Uh, I, I, I survived a stroke. But Talia said, just be yourself, which was the hardest thing of all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you become self-conscious. Like, Wait a minute. <laughs> but we, when we got into, you know, cutting pieces of uniform and interacting with the discussion that goes on when you do that, and then somebody's working on some artwork and says, come over here and help me with that, then you forget there's a camera zooming around the room. That camera just becomes like a fly on the wall and you guys just be pretty much act, you just, it was behaving normally, right? Yes. And then, the go ahead. Well, because she had us do like sometimes 10 takes, <laughs> oh, I really take helped. five, I realized what pauses are for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not rushing through a script. I'm not rushing through life. Slow it down to the actual thing that we do when we're doing workshops, which is not even thinking about something. And then something reminds you of something and you say, oh, this reminds me of so whatever it reminds me of, which was the whole point. Um, yeah, I thought doing the multiple takes was was actually pretty fun. Um, you know, just over and over, um, trying to get it right, um, but improvising at the same time. It, it was a really fun process. Yeah, I was, and, and one of the things that I, that I took, well, I was, I was, I've, I've done, I've been to one of those uh, paper making workshops. Um, um, I went to it, I went through it here and, and I believe it was in Dallas or Austin, right there. We had, a uh, another vet, right? He was also part of the, uh, the paper making a project and he, he had a workshop for us and showed us how to do everything and pretty much went through the process. It was pretty cool. That was my first time ever doing it. I really liked it. Um, but while I was listening also to your interactions as you guys were, were, were doing, it wasn't, it didn't look robotic. It looks like, you know, you guys were just, you know, it was natural. It was like, you know, it's veterans will do stuff, you know, like we're in a motor pool or something. We're just, you know, shooting the, you know, we call it shooting the crap, you know, just talking, just telling stories and just randomly, you know, changing topics left and right. And just, you know, as, as we're doing, as we're changing a wheel or something like that in a motor pool, you know, 
uh, you're doing a task, just how the conversation just kept flowing, kept flowing and just different things that you guys keep, you know, drawing back from, from experiences and throwing there and just joking around and, you know, which was, which was, I could really relate to that, those scenes there because, because I remember doing it myself being, you know, like I said, being doing some type of manual task, you know, or just, just shooting the crap, you know. Did, was, you guys feel the same way as, you know, I don't know what was your background in the military, but was, was you guys feel the same way as it was, as it was happening like that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, that, that aspect of the military, uh, having some downtime and really having nothing to do, so make conversation, smoking and joking, um, that, that is really a, you know, a major aspect of of the workshop, you know, it's like, um, you have busy hands, you know, you're making paper, you're, you're cutting up the uniform and maybe, you know, in those, in those, uh, times in the military, when you're in the motor pool, you know, you're trying to keep busy, uh, making conversation. So yeah, that's a, absolutely a component of, of these workshops and what we do. So, well, so, Talia, was that intentional or did it just happen that way and you just capture it in the film? Oh, that was very intentional. It was one of the first things that I was I was struck by when I um when I came across uh these guys in this process. Um acting is behavior ultimately. And so what I was seeing uh in these in 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 these workshops was so much physical behavior. And so I sort of knew that as long as we were physically occupied. And that this was focused, um, you know, the the dialogue and the conversation would flow. And if we had a direction we wanted to go and things we wanted to bring up uh, or incorporate into the film, we could do so pretty seamlessly if we um, kind of choreographed it with physical behavior. So that's how I concentrated on it. And I spent uh, an awful lot of time learning the process and trying to understand how those different phases of the work connect and what various people do at different times. Um, and how conversations would naturally arise. I did an awful lot of uh, observing as well as immersing myself in it. And, you know, ultimately, yeah, it's, it's, it's what you would call structured improvisation. It's not completely off the cuff. Um, it is, but it's, 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 it's grounded in, in these physical behaviors. And that's what allows people to, as Jan was describing, become basically unselfconscious over it. So you, it's a little awkward at first, but you forget the cameras there. And the reason for that is because you're, you are physically engaged and occupied, um, doing things that, uh, they're, they're very comfortable doing and they do all the time, you know, and that, and that, uh, allows us to, to kind of, um, engage with, with that world in a natural way. Also, in the film, uh, I believe everyone there was a veteran. Uh, was that, you know, veteran, but, but you, the main act, the main, uh, the other main, your core, your core actor, uh, and Danny, right? That's right. So, uh, the actor who played Will, uh, Sam Adegoke, uh, not a veteran, and um, also the actor who played Timothy, um, Danny Ramirez, uh, also a an actor and not not a veteran. Mm -hmm. uh, veteran. So, but yeah. you, but everyone, everyone else was a veteran, and and what you did is you intentionally uh, created a an atmosphere to have. A, you intentionally made it like intergenerational. Yes. Right? Intergenerational, and I think that was you know that was one of the beauty of of the film because uh, one of the things that uh, 
So I came, I, you know, I was in the, in the military doing the, I came in the military before the so-called gold war and then left and got out like around 2007. Right. But uh, one of the things that, that was, that was, that was talked about among my peers is there was this comparison, this aura, you know, when, when they were building up to go to, you know, we're building up to go to, 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 uh, to deployment and train for deployment and everything. There was this aura, you know, there was this feeling that we were trying to go, um, uh, we were trying to be like that, like that uh the greatest generation for example we're trying to go back to world war ii and if you look at the uniforms today the military right the class a's i'm not you notice that kevin that they changed the class a's to a world war ii class days i don't know i don't know if, if you've seen that so so it's like bringing back this aesthetic going back you know to to the the second world war because that's very it's very it's very um 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 you know it's very um uh, Romanticized. Yeah, nostalgia romanticized, right? But they skipped a couple other wars in between. And one of the wars that they skipped was what was Jan's war, you know? Uh, So that doesn't really come into into the conversation, you know? So it seems like, it seems like back then, I'm here thinking it was World War II and now us and now we're the next generation, the next greatest generation, right? That's the way it was presented to us, right? But like I said, they skipped the whole other hosts of wars, which the United States have been continued, whether they've been open war or dirty wars. And what Talia did in this film was just put into uh, this, this intergenerational war. If I'm not mistaken, you had combat vets from the Korean War as well. You have Vietnam and GY. Was that, am I mistaken? Or Korean, was- I don't believe so, but um, we had several um, veterans from, uh, who served in Vietnam and a veteran who served in Somalia. Somalia, yeah. Well, the upstate scenes were, were shot at a World War II veteran's house. Right. It's pretty cool. Yeah. We couldn't have made the film without the Gould Coleman, World War II veteran. Yeah. And his house is, is the location for the whole second half of the film. And um, I, would, uh, I would pay him a visit almost once a month for a year or more just to hang out and prepare the film. And we would talk at, at length about uh, what the film was about and how we were going about it. So, yeah, so, so what was beautiful is that the narrative that you put here together, right? You put all these intergenerational wars together, right? And you title the, well, this is not a war story, right? Meaning that this is not all this glory and, you know, just, you know, charging the hill and everything and always, you know, sexualizing that, you know, you made it, you made it different, right? You made it different than the, the other ones. John, I'm trying, uh, what, what's your thought on all this and, and bring together all of these uh, combat vets from different generations and, and you're sharing space with them. Oh, I was excited about this film when I first heard from Telly what she was thinking about doing it and to see it develop into um, interacting with people who I had been interacting with, not only in doing um, paperwork, but we did poetry performances. Uh, I primarily um, helped with uh, doing writing workshops and then putting on performances. Um, and so to some degree that provided us some background to, this is another kind of massive public performance. <laughs> I think, you know, our generation of, of veterans, you know, post nine eleven veterans, uh, have learned a lot from, you know, the generations before us. Uh, and unfortunately a lot of, um, um, opportunities have been 
denied to veterans um, pre-9-11. Um, you know, a lot of organizations are only for uh, post-9-11 veterans. But one nice thing about uh, both the writing workshop, warrior writers, paper-making workshops, frontline arts, is that they were always open for all generations. Um, and that's, you know, it, it, it's, it creates like a, a sort of mentoring relationship, which is, you know, super important. I've learned so much from, from Vietnam veterans, you know, Jan actually was the person who taught me how to make paper. Mm. I, I don't know if he remembers that day. Jan was actually the first person to, to stand with me at a vat of paper and, um, you know, and we pulled sheets together and I was hooked. Um, and yeah, in, in the film, it's, you know, like all the, the workshop scenes represent that so well, you know, the, the conversations between, you know, Vietnam veterans and, and, uh, post 11 veterans, it's, it's represented really well. And, you know, those conversations are always interesting, unique. Every workshop has, you know, different, different topics come up. Uh, people reminisce about, you know, um, uh, you know, what they did doing anti-war activism and, um, you know, where they served in the military, you know, and then it's like even things like, um, uh, you know, VA services, all sorts of, uh, you know, all sorts of great, great things like that come up in conversation. Yeah. Let's see the synergy here, um, in the film and that, and, and that was, for me, that was the, one of the best parts of the film, the synergy there uh, with the veterans doing, you know, the paper making and the conversation and I think one of them saying, uh, and they're relating back to, to the experience then in, in Iraq and the resistance they found in Iraq. And they were saying something that, you know, if it was, if the roles were reversed, that's one of the things that I remember the most that, that stuck with me, the role, the roles were reversed. It'll be, it'll be a uh, red dawn all over the place. Something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was Nathan oh. Lewis. <laughs> huh? Was that? Uh, Nathan Lewis uh, said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The roles will be reversed. We'll be red dots. We'll be, be red dawn every day. Something like that. There, which is, which I love that uh, that mm -hmm. saying because it's true. Because people don't think about it. You know, when one of the things that uh, that I found nauseating, you know, in the run up to to the to the war in Iraq is all the rah rah who are you know support the soldier and everything like that and. Seemed like uh, like like we're cheering a team to a Super Bowl. We just made we just made you know we're going to the Super Bowl. That that's what it, that's what it felt like. The whole nation was like that. Yeah. So that's one of the things that that I, that, I, that I took you know from the, from the conversation. Um, Jed, so you you're you're a Vietnam vet, right? Uh, can you can you compare the the atmosphere of your generation? With, with this this Gulf War, all these this Middle East wars, uh, and and the atmosphere that's happening here, uh, back then, is there? Could you compare those 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 two those two um, generations there? There were basically two portions of the Vietnam War. I was there in 1962 and 1963, when the government didn't want to say we were in the war and called us advisors. Uh, until fairly recently, the VA insisted that I wasn't a Vietnam vet because the Vietnam War started in August 1964 with the Tonkin Gulf, which by that time, hundreds of GIs had already died in Vietnam. 
Um, but the VA insisted that I, I didn't fit that category. So that then after the Tonkin Gulf, everything after that point was rah, 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 rah. Uh, and it was talking about uh, the big battalions are coming in. And I, I ended up at West Point as a cadet after I was in Vietnam. And I heard all this baloney and decided I didn't want to have a career making things up uh, and going back to Vietnam in charge of platoon in which while I was there, I was with World War II and Korea War, War veterans who said this whole thing is bizarre. Um, but the government didn't want to hear the reality of it. And so the Hollywoodization of the Vietnam War kicked in basically in 1965 when a big unit of the Marines was sent in. There had already been small units of Marines there. And then the, the big army units shows, show up. The smaller units had already been there. All of that got shoved aside. And so um, many of us who were in Vietnam knew that the next generation of veterans was going to be mistreated. And in fact, when the war started in Iraq, I was part of helping to organize a protest against the war in which we were trying to have the protest just before the war started. And we had chosen up in March. The war started that Thursday. So when a bunch of us went down there to about 500 vets to protest the beginning of the war, everybody thought we were crazy. But I was saying to people around me, a year from now, a bunch of angry guys are going to come back from Iraq. Let's be prepared to help them. And the larger organization called Vietnam Veterans of America has a slogan, leave no veteran behind. Uh, because many of us were dis dismissed by World War II vets, such as in the American Legion. And like, who are, who are you guys? You were, you were not in a real war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, to a large degree, uh, Vietnam vets tried to be of assistance to uh, Iraq veterans against the war or just individually assisting uh, people as they got out of the military or while they were still on active duty. One of the other interactions was through an organization called Military Families Speak Out in which we were trying to assist people on active duty through their families in many cases. Then Sometimes we were able to assist people in making that transition of getting out of the military, but not always. Some people committed suicide and we were still trying to figure out to this day, what is it we can do to try to help somebody get through that period of time in which, because they don't say anything, you don't know they're going to kill themselves. Most people don't announce it. And in some cases, uh, I'm talking about Walt Nygaard, who's in the film, his son was in Iraq and Afghanistan and then back in Iraq. While we're doing what we're doing, we're trying to be of assistance to, holy moly, you know, a family's got to deal with, uh, this is what they would choose, but their son is gone with the National Guard gone here, with the Army gone there, with another National Guard unit gone there. And we didn't have that in the Vietnam War of the National Guard being dragged off overseas. In that time frame, getting to the National Guard was a guarantee you would not go to Vietnam. And what the military has done in this time frame is decide, 
there's a there's a group of people we can capture. You were in the National Guard? Hey, they signed up for it. We'll send them overseas. So one of the things that I learned, I didn't know this, is I heard people coming back and speaking at Iraq Veterans Against the War. Nobody in the National Guard is trained to do what they were told to do, to set up roadblocks and determine who doesn't understand it. You just told them to stop in English. They don't speak English. They didn't stop. So your sergeant or somebody says, shoot up, shoot up the car. Over and over and over and over and over again, heard these kinds of stories. What does somebody do with that kind of an experience if you don't have some way of either writing about it or putting it to artwork or speaking about it in some fashion? Yeah, you turn it against yourself if you don't have. Yeah, to. yeah. I think one of the one of the difference what you just mentioned there, Jen, is that I recall that in the lead up to the Iraq War, because so you got to keep in mind that. Uh, a few months earlier, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, you know, and they had a lot of uh, popular support back then because 9-11 was, you know, was fresh. And in a matter of, of months, I, I think not even a year, I think a year, uh, all the attention overnight just focused on Iraq. And what you mentioned there, Jen, is that the the people came out to the street immediately, right? They were like, you said you were organizing uh, demonstrations in, port, in protest, uh, re- even before the war started, uh, people were out, people were out there in the streets. Uh, I believe it was registered as one of the largest anti-war protests, you know, like in decades. You know, uh, but what you're saying, Jen, that in your experience in Vietnam, that didn't happen because most Americans didn't even know that they had uh, there were soldiers in Vietnam. You know, they they were calling them uh, uh, visors, and it wasn't like. Uh, I think what two or three years later, that's when you know the body bags started coming in and whatnot. That's when people started organizing uh, protests and uh, and soldiers back then. It's one of the things that that Hollywood just picked. The soldiers back then took the leading role in organizing demonstrations and protests. Uh, out of yep. that, out of that conflict, we have the Vietnam uh, Veterans Against the War that came out of the, uh, out of, out of that conflict, started organizing people, started doing speaking tours and whatnot. That's one of the things that, that when they depict, when they make films and they pick, um, the sixties and, and they pick protesting the wars and stuff. That's one of the things that don't, they don't show. They don't show, um, actual soldiers being involved, engaged and coming back and organizing people to them, to demo, right? In our, gen- in this generation, right? Uh, something similar happened with, with, with the Iraq war, as soon as they started coming in, soldiers started organizing, right? And this is where myself and, and Kevin uh, fits in. Um, Kevin, can you share some of the experience when you, when you came back and, and, and found um, um, organizing? I joined IBAW in 2012. Um, and what's interesting, I actually joined through the, the arts. I was seeing YouTube videos. I was... Um, I was uh, being told about this organization, Warrior Writers, by people in the writing program that I was in. Um, and all along, I, I, had, I had been interested in getting involved in anti-war activism, um, but I didn't take the leap. I was, I was focused on school and, and, um, and other things at the time, but it was really the arts that that sort of ushered me into activism. And then interestingly enough, you know, like through, I, I did activism 
um, from like 2012 through 2017, 2018, and then kind of gravitated back toward the arts. And that's primarily where I am now. Um, but still with that anti-war focus, um, and thinking about the intergenerational aspects of, of, of these workshops and the film, uh, one of the things I think the post 9-11 generation of veterans learned from uh, Vietnam generation is a lot of tactics um, for, for activism. You know, IVAW actually recreated a lot of VVAW's protests. For example, like um, Winter Soldier testimonies that uh, Jan and so many other Vietnam veterans were involved in set up in uh when was nineteen seventy one, Jen? I think so. So that's just that's just one example. But then also, you know, the, the poetry that was coming out of uh VVAW and and Vietnam veterans who were, you know, using poetry as a form of protest, um, that was really inspiring to to me also. And all this stuff kind of mixed together at some point for me activism art and uh yes it's it's kept me nourished for the past decade and uh gets me out of my 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 little room here and into the world and that's a good thing so talia what is the artistic you know venue avenue to to protest because this film essentially is a protest film you know uh that's what i took i took this a protest film protesting the uh this war is the concept of the narratives of they were constantly bombarded with with the different wars and whatnot, right? Um, the title is not a war story. So, but what is that 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 the artistic uh, avenue has to do with and the expression of art has to do with with protesting wars? Mm. And well, that's a good question. Um, there's a couple of different ways to answer it, but what comes to mind is the fact that you know the film, the fact that the film exists. In the form that it does, which is to say as a hybrid narrative, some real elements, real people, real conversations, but with a narrative structure and fictional characters who are informed by the real people who are in the film and so on. This kind of a hybrid, just the fact that it exists in that way is kind of a defiance of, of how films are you know, supposed to be made. Um, and then you have, of course, the genre itself, the, the war movie and what kind of story are you supposed to tell? Um, you know, you're supposed to do the rah-rah uh, patriotism thing. And even even for, for films that are kind of in some ways lauded for, for portraying the horrors of war like Apocalypse Now and films of that sort, they do in a weird way also celebrate war because they're very sexy. They're very compelling. Um, they're, they're, they're just dripping with these gorgeous images and they, they really seduce you into, you know, um, into the whole lore of it. So even though they may behave or sound as though they're anti-war and functionally, I would say that they're not. Um, and so this, I think, our film is in its own, you know, modest way, I think, approximating uh, an anti-war uh, film in a way that I haven't seen before. Um, and it's filling a necessary um, function in that way because um, it's, uh, it, is, it is very hard to both capture it and also not show it. <laughs> um, but I think it's also essential. You know, you know, you know what, when you said that, uh, because I, I saw this film from Jump, I realized, you know, I saw it as, a, as an anti-war film, you know, you know, um, 
very objectively. Uh, but also, I also had the privilege to talk to you before that, and you know, and and you tell me about it, and you know, we discussed before that. Uh, but you mentioned other films that were also uh, meant to be anti-war, uh, like you know, you mentioned Apocalypse Now. You know, that was the intention. Uh, Platoon was the intention to be anti-war, to be a criticism of the Vietnam War. And you have also Full Metal Jacket. Um, and I've watched those movies when I was young, all right? And and I didn't come out from it, you know, as, as oh, this, is a, this is an anti-war movie. No, I came out of it more, you know, more pumped up, you know? You know, I came out of it more pumped up, you know? And uh, But yours doesn't give that feeling. Uh, it was interesting because when we screened it, here in San Antonio, we had uh, uh, we had also different generations in the audience, right? We had a, a couple of Vietnam veterans. We had veterans from so-called War on Terror, uh, and we had uh, young people, college people, and we had a young high school kid who was in ROTC. Do you remember? Yes, I do. Yeah, he was in ROTC. He also spoke as well, and uh, we asked him what he took out of the film. And one of the things they took out of the film is that, you know, a lot of the images that you portray, the narrative that you portray, is not something that he really sat down and thought about, you know, because he's RTC, he's very active and everything like that. Uh, but that's not something that, that is, that is um, in his school and stuff like that. It's not, that's something that is pushed on him, you know, something that he's exposed to, you know, and then he was exposed to it in the film. So it made him think, you know, made him think a little bit more about another aspect of militarism, you know, it's not that he's dying, it's not all so sexy, big guns and, you know, uniform and all of that, you know, it's another aspect to it as well. Yeah. And also this is, you know, this should, this film should be the antidote to all that. It is, it is by design. I mean, that's one of the problems with, you know, a film like, um, you know, American Sniper, you know, it's just, you have, you have the figure come home, but he's also a brooding, heroic, you know, sort of, it's just, it glamorizes even that side of things. So it still isn't, isn't treating in, at all truthfully um, this experience in a way that is going to deter somebody like um, our, our, our fellow who is, you know, c- you know considering the ROTC is, is to really think deeply about this, right? Um, that was the challenge here, but that was also uh, the commitment that we made at the outset. What movie are we making? You know, we made the, the film that we set out to make. Um, you know, and all of these things that we're describing, which is why the, the title is so apt. You know? um, but it has another meaning too, which comes from, you know, Tim O'Brien, when you read um, the things they carried and, um, and he comes to this conclusion that, you know, oftentimes to, to really arrive at the truth and really convey it, one has to go by way of fiction and metaphor and, 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 and description um, and character. Um, and I certainly have found this to be true. Um, I think that that was one of the exciting things about doing this collaboration and making the film in the way that we did, because I thought that it's not enough to just have these stories be told in a talking heads documentarian sort of way. One needs a narrative scope. One needs a structure where the story starts somewhere and arrives somewhere else over the course of two hours. So that you feel that scope, you feel the impact of it. Yeah, and you, you mentioned uh, American Sniper, for example. That the focus in that film was um, his PTSD, his, his demon, and and whatnot, right? But everything it was him. It was, it was very, very soldier centric, and it was him uh, and uh, the people he encountered in his deployment, which which got the brunt of 
of the effect. You know, they got, they were on the other side of the barrel. They got, you know, they were at the front of, you know, they were, they're the ones whose homeland were made to waste, you know, uh, they're invisible, you know, they're, they're treated as, as faceless, um, zombies, for example, you know, uh, but in your film, right, your film, you know, uh, and based on those conversations that they were having in the workshops and based on the, uh, uh, and that scene that you were with, uh, with Will and he's, you know, we saw, what are you thanking me for? You know, um, you humanized the victims of, of this, uh, of these forever wars, this imperialist wars. Yeah, that was very much an intention going into it. And that was, um, the substance of the poem. Um, Kevin, uh, and I had, had brainstormed poems for, for Isabel to have, and we talked about wanting to have represented this detainee experience. I'll let Kevin speak to that, but that was an intentional, we were finding ways every way we could to, to include that into the story, you know, maybe you can speak to that poem, uh, Kevin. The detainee. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I, I, I didn't personally have, um, experiences with detainees, like some of the, uh, veterans in our community, um, who, who worked with them very directly, but I just had a couple incidents where like one night I was at the radar site. I was a mobile radar operator, sort of like air traffic control in, in Iraq in, in 2007. I was at Camp Taji and I walked outside at night to use the portage on and I saw, um, a line of detainees, um, against the fence and they were, I guess, waiting to be boarded on a plane and taken somewhere who knows where, uh, and that image, it was very brief, but it, it, it just, it stuck with me. Um, so I think, I don't know, maybe some of the poem comes from that. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and also, you know, it's certainly some of it's just, you know, writing to spec, writing for, uh, for Talia's character. So. Yeah. Which, which we had, you know, aspects of, of the character even were conceived and in, in collaboratively. And, um, you know, um, uh, Paul Chaffin was a, a veteran who appears in, briefly in the film, but it was also working uh, on the crew. Um, and, uh, you know, we, the, the the aspect of he he helped inform this one aspect of her character being an MP. There were just there were parts where we were trying to build her character in such a way where her experience would give us pathways to speak about certain um, experiences that could that could where we could deal with moral injury um, in in ways that would um, you know in, invited into the film. So um, if if she had been uh, an MP during a certain period of time. Having served in Iraq, she would um, have had experiences of um, dealing with detainees, and that was the the origin point for, um, you know, having having a poem there that would give, you know, allow the film to give expression to that experience and what that does, and not just to just point at the trauma that comes from that, but also to kind of acknowledge, as you were saying, Giovanni, about like humanizing those on quote the other side, um, whatever the heck that means, you know, but the, the humanization of it, which is just. You know all these movies that we're talking about don't even don't even bother to 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 attempt you know um which is very damaging to the cultural conversation to say the least. These are just a couple of examples of the collaborative process 
Um, I was absolutely floored to uh, see an actor reading one of my poems and saying, oh, I want to thank my friend Jan Berry for this poem, which I wasn't expecting that. On the other hand, that's what would be happening. Someone would be looking for something to read under the circumstances about suicide and say, I want to thank the person who, who wrote the poem, happens to be my good friend here, which I'm both a character and a and a unknown um, contributor. Um, so that, again, that's only one example of the process in which taking all the various elements that we had available, this is not what you're going to see in a Hollywood movie. Yeah, it's it's in a way it's so anti Hollywood that um, you know I I was like any filmmaker concerned. Well, what's going to happen to this when we when it finishes? I, you want it to you want it to be able to have a life and get out there into the world. But um, we had all agreed um, there was no reality wherein we would uh, finish the film and then have some company come along and tell us that we had to change it. Right? We knew we were making something that was anti-Hollywood in all the ways that we've talked about and they were either going to take it or leave it and that was that um, so yeah I mean when it, you know it, things happen the way that they happen but um, the point is that uh, we, we, were, we were not going to compromise um, on that then that was the deal otherwise the and film wouldn't be what it is you know one of the exciting things about being able to participate in a, a reviewing in Peekskill, New York, mm. where a member of the crew has some relationship to the town in some way. Mm-hmm. Nick Bowen, uh, the sound mixer. Mm-hmm. It was the oldest theater I probably have been in that still shows movies. And it was a small crowd, but they asked questions. So it, it, it was another kind of a context in which this could be shown to all kinds of places and have, the, have a real conversation as opposed to people go to a movie and then they get out and they walk out and say whatever they want to say, but they're not saying it to each other. Yeah. There was a screening recently um, uh, conducted by a Vietnam veterans peer-to-peer group Um and uh, that Everett Cox was involved, and in. he's a Vietnam veteran who appears in our film. And um, they had a they had quite a, a very long um, Q and A afterwards, and a very lively um, debate and discussion about the film. Um, but one of the things that they ran up against was that they wanted to continue showing the film and get other organizations behind it. And evidently, there's a little bit of pushback from uh, organizations that are a little bit, I guess, pro military, <laughs> which is not surprising, I suppose. Yeah. We're, we're pushing against, I grew up in the 1950s and John Wayne was the epitome of the Hollywood soldier. Um, the Boy Scouts was a training camp to go straight into the military. The American Legion of my town sponsored the Boy Scouts. They sponsored something called Boy State. They sponsored all kinds of other ways in which Patriotism was indoctrinated into you. To have to un- unlearn that is very difficult to do. And then you bounce into, well, when you want to go back and have a conversation with those same people, they don't want to hear from you. That, and it's interesting because with the Vietnam experience, right, um, 
it just became, you know, they were resistant at the beginning, right? But then it came to a point, it just became conventional wisdom that it was a bad war. Um, then you started getting a lot of public, you know, public demonstration, a very large demonstration. I just saw a video recently, uh, and, uh, Vietnam, you know, anti-war rally in DC where just a sea of people out there and the Lincoln Memorial, you know, so it became conventional wisdom, uh, that it was a bad war, right? I mean, they even made it, they even made a, a, an illness out of it called the Vietnam syndrome. So the Vietnam syndrome was, uh, is, you know, the made up illness that, you know, there's stated that Americans, you know, because of the Vietnam experience, uh, Americans, you know, wouldn't support any, those types of wars again, you know, they would be hesitant to send, send their, their young, you know, boys and girls out to, to the military to fight wars. And, and if I'm not mistaken, Jen, right. And it took a while to get over that, that Vietnam syndrome, you know, the, uh, first, the first Gulf war, president George Bush first or whatever <laughs> said, we just kicked the Vietnam syndrome by, you know, invading Iraq in yeah. 1991. And right before that was the, yeah, the Panama invasion. But the point I'm trying to get to that throughout the seventies and early eighties, um, the military was not a popular institution among many Americans. Um, and the, the film industry, you know, during the Reagan era made it popular again, you know, you start pumping out these war films, you know, Rambo, you know, uh, what's the other one? Um, yeah. Top Gun. Chuck you can Top Gun, the, the, the Chuck Norris movies, you know, and, you know, all these, uh, I remember growing up, you know, seeing the shows, you know, all the popular shows of the time, all of them were Vietnam Vet, Magnum P.I., The A-Team, uh, MacGyver, you know, um, all these shows, you know, all of them were, were Vietnam veterans, you know, you know, war veterans and whatnot. And, you know, it's made popular again. Then you hit the 90s, like you said, the Gulf War just became a storm, it became popular again and uh um, but that's something we haven't seen with, with with this conflict because this conflict in the middle east lasted it left i mean we're in the 20 20th year we want to celebrate we want to commemorate 20 years of the iraq war but the, but the wars haven't stopped yet it just just have been expanding expanding people seem to be numb to it now and 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 the popularity in the military hasn't hasn't decreased it has only has increased do you sense that too jen yeah, they'll come up with some way of uh, romanticizing these wars. I mean, there, there's several movies out there about guys come back from Iraq, and the most recent one that's on cable TV is a guy with a dog. And even though he's all messed up and the dog is all messed up, they, they sort of, you know, find a way of getting through all of this, and, and, and somehow or other you have a feeling that this was heroic. Why were they messed up is not really focused on in the movie. Well, it's interesting with the, with the Gulf War, uh, that's where a lot of the support the troops rhetoric and culture that we have today comes from. Uh, when the purpose of fighting the war actually became to a great extent to support the troops. And we're still really living in that culture today. And, you know, I, th I think like, so much of our work has been to push back against uh, you know, that empty uh, rhetoric. And, and something else, um, to go back to some of the films that you mentioned earlier, Giovanni, um, Apocalypse Now, 
supposedly anti-war films. I saw a lot of those those movies before I joined the army. As I said in, and this is not a war story, you know, I, I joined the military to get out of trouble, get my life back on track. And that was the primary purpose. The secondary purpose was that I was joining to to go through the gauntlet, to become a man to a great extent. And what I think so important about this war story is that it removes that hyper-masculine element and effectively becomes an anti-war movie because of that, I think. Well, one of the things too that when we screened it here, there was a a Vietnam veteran and he was a member of... um, uh, being our veterans against the war and I've collaborated with them and, and other, uh, you know, organized, you know, and other events and stuff like that. One of the things he mentioned is that he talked about how he started organizing when he got back from Vietnam. Um, and he said, he said that this generation has a lot harder than when he, when he came back and when he was organizing, when he was on the streets and stuff like that. Um, and one of the reasons he mentioned is that, that back then, uh, the media was more honest than they are today, you know, and the fact that, that, that the media is in cahoots with the security state, you know, makes it a lot harder because now with the media, media becomes the propaganda arm of the security state and just, and the effect is to numb people. Just like you mentioned about that, that, uh, the film about the dog, right? You know, and there's, there've been other films about and TV shows and whatnot, you know, where they have veterans in it. And, and there's always the, sort of the episode of PTSD and everything and all that. Uh, but like you say, they always find a way to, it becomes, it becomes a mixture of a Superman and a, a charity case, something like that, or, you know, something to feel, to feel sympathy towards, you know, because we're all a poor person, right? But at the same time, it's a Superman as well. So it becomes like this odd, this weird juncture here, you know? Yeah, and and then it's also like like Kevin was saying. There's also become it's like it's it's built now this taboo, where a, st- a movie like that just doesn't even go near. Well, why? What's the cause of this trauma? What what's going on? What is the what are we doing in the war? Like none of all of that is implicitly, it's sort of become a taboo, right? Um, one can't even ask the question, and so it becomes this this social construct that to critique the war is to critique the veteran. And by and by by doing that, they have shut people up. It's very effective. Um, Until the 1980s, with the Reagan as president, there was something called the Fairness Doctrine, yes, in which talk radio and talk television had to have somebody representing both sides, which allowed me as an anti-war vet to go on to all kinds of programs. And then in the 80s, we were all shut out. We don't need you people any longer because we don't have to do that any longer. Except for in one instance when John Kerry was running for president, uh, the people who essentially are Fox News did a hatchet job film about John Kerry, but they used some footage from Winter Soldier that included uh, a guy who at the time was a professor at the University of Maryland, who was a Vietnam vet, and he threatened to sue them. And, and he went to their premiere, wherever the hell it was, and threatened to sue them. That film didn't didn't really go anyplace, but that's what they were doing. And I happened to be in my own newsroom, and I'm seeing on CNN advertisements all day long 
about some guys who say they also were in similar units and John Kerry was lying. And that one mention on CNN about what is this? What's this all about? Where did this come from? They just went along with the smear. What do they call it? They call it swift boat. The swift boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So now, and then we have, you know, now we have social media. Um, now we have, uh, alternative media, you know, it's supposed to democratize, uh, the media, give people more voice and whatnot, push back against establishment and stuff like that. But, uh, but when it comes to these foreign policies, you know, most of them just fall in line, you know? Um, and not only that, that, you know, uh, there's a lot of funding involved. There's a lot of, you know, partisan politics involved as well, you know, depending on who's in, who's in power. Um, you know, it just becomes part of this, this alternative media become part of mainstream media anyway, you know, when it comes to it. Um, but I, w- I wanted to ask you also, Tanya, because you mentioned earlier, uh, moral injury and like, and there've been filmed before about PTSD, but moral injury is not something that comes out and, and it's two different things, moral injury and PTSD. PTSD is more physiological, uh, and more injury is more psychological. So, so can you explain, can you explain different, can you explain this, you know, and this, why you took this angle? Yeah, sure. Because I, initially when I, I mean, you know, I embarked on this a while ago now, 2015 was the, was the, the very seeds of this. And, and my, my, my point of entry is trauma because that's what I've just been dealing with for most of my life. Um, obviously not from war, but, um, from my own other kinds of experiences, um, in, uh, from childhood and onward. Um, and so my, my pulling on the strings of trauma and trying to contend with it and fathom it, um, you know, is what led me down the road of this story. But the, the, the point for me, when I discovered the distinction of moral injury, which is essentially that, um, it's trauma that is, that is caused specifically by feeling that one has crossed one's own moral boundaries you've completely warped your moral compass and you've done something that goes against what you what you believe in now yes there's a psychological component but there's a you know there's an existential component to that um and it's something that very specifically points to well what did one do you know um it's not it, it, because when you when a, when when there's a focus only on the state of trauma it's very easy for let's say um another film or a story to say well someone witnessed something very violent um, or endured something very violent, then it's easy to sympathize with that. Um, but what I was interested in, in asking Americans when they watch this film is, can you empathize with and understand somebody who has this experience, not because of something that was done to them, but because of something that they did uh, and took part in? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves as, as civilians, you see. Um, and that's where it became a, a critical component to me. Um, if that makes sense, I'm trying to capture a very complicated subject and be brief. <laughs> so it's uh, not easy to do. Uh, I think what's interesting about moral injury is that it repoliticizes PTSD in a way. Um, uh, PTSD, you know, really comes from the work that DVAW is doing. And Jan can probably say more about this, but, uh, you know, Originally, PTSD was, you know, it, 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 it was a, you know, it, it came out of anti-war work. And, uh, over the years, I think it's, it's 
been depoliticized, you know, where where it's become more about the symptoms, which, you know, rightfully so, you need to address those. But, you know, like, again, the bigger question stopped being asked, you know, why were we in Iraq? Why were we in Vietnam? Uh, and moral injury brings those questions back into the conversation. I, I got involved in this early on when um, uh, someone had gone to a congressional committee in 1970 and said um, they should be aware of something that could be called the post-Vietnam syndrome. But it was meant to be simply like a starting point. Uh, and this guy, whose name I'll remember in a moment, uh, Robert Lifton, uh, I contacted him and I said, well, I, I'm with a bunch of Vietnam vets. Would you sit down and meet with us? Which he did. And then he brought in a whole bunch of other people who were psychiatrists and psychologists who volunteered their time. Who basically, and he'd been in the Air Force during the Korean War, but they basically said to us, uh, they didn't know what to call this, but it was something that needed to be addressed. And so we had what were called rap groups. So we could discuss what we were dealing with. I remember at the time thinking, Wow, 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 wow. I'd never talk about that, but that's true. I would never talk about that, but somebody else will say it. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> wow, somebody said it. Um, and it, it grew in two different ways. One group of vets decided this is the area I want to work in and went and got whatever degrees they needed up to a PhD so they could work in this field. And another group decided they would write the legislation so that something could be done about it at the VA level. And both of these threads came together in 1979. This name was attached to the official uh, diagnostic manual. Um, and a bill came out of Congress in 1979 that, that would uh, create these standalone vet centers outside of the hospital system to deal with PTSD. And um, as soon as the Reagan administration came in a couple of years later, they wanted to defund it. There was a huge battle. And in this case, some, some of the traditional veterans organizations stood up to, no, you can't just take this away. But it's been a constant fight over the years just to keep those services. And I think still to this day, most vets have no idea what a vet center is. But they can go to one. And what I discovered in going to the nearest one in Secaucus, New Jersey, is that's where the cops go who have PTSD. Because there's not going to be any record to get him back to anybody because that was the way the whole system was set up. It's not part of the hospital system, which one didn't want it. But number two, um, it has its own, like, standalone record keeping. In fact, it's so bizarre that when I applied a couple of years ago, because of Agent Orange health problems, I, I thought, well, I should add PTSD to my claim. The response in the VA was, prove why you have PTSD. <laughs> I called up my counselor at the Secaucus Center and I said, can't you just uh, email over to them whatever it is you have there? He says, no, we have to put it in the mail and mail it to them. That's how separate those two systems are. 
But what has happened over time is that PTSD went from being something was kind of like, what are you talking about? To now everybody who was in the war legitimately has PTSD. Plus lots of other people. The whole concept of, of why it was in this diagnostic manual is that it included people who are rape victims, who are survivors of terrible car wrecks, who are survivors of fires, etc. all kinds of traumas. That's to a large degree been lost sight of in terms of where do all these people come together in the same place? Very rarely have that, very rarely have that discussion. And are only tentatively through the vet center process three years ago that we start having the conversation of men and women are in the same conversation. And I remember the woman counselor who got me first involved with the art group at um, Secaucus said to me, you know, lots of men are raped in the military. Nobody's going to talk about that. Where, where does somebody go with that experience? So this is an area that still is shrouded in uh, non-discussion more than anything else. Um, the film, your film has been reviewed. Uh, uh, there's a review by the New York Times. It says, uh, this is not a war story, nor does coming home means peace. Uh, this part of the drama directed by and starring by Talia Lugasi follows the traumatized Marine as she tries to connect with a group of fellow veterans. Uh, I can't read it's in a paywall right now, but I wanted to ask you, you know, what has been the reaction uh, to this film? It's been, it's been a year now, right? It's been like phenomenally positive. I mean, we had, um, I don't know, I just, you never know. You, 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 you do the, your goddamn best to, to make a thing and then you put it out into the world and let it be and you don't know how the world is going to respond. Um, you know, we had uh, um, an Independent Spirit Award nomination, which was pretty, pretty cool acknowledgement for the film. And it's on HBO Max. And, you know, the reviews have been extremely positive, um, like unanimously, which is, which is very cool. And I think it's a testament to just how, you know, how rare of a film it is in some ways. I just don't, I don't think it overlaps with a lot of other things. And I think when people encounter it, they realize that like, this is, Really, I haven't seen this this topic treated in this way before. Um, and that's the kind of feedback that we get, um, you know, which which means that we we did what we set out to do. So where we go from here? I mean, you know, one of one of the things that was that it was um, it was sort of the point of the of of making the film in this collaborative way was that ultimately it should be an invitation for civilians to to be more curious. And to ask more questions and to have an opinion, you know, because one of the things that I found that was such a, such a roadblock for me in the beginning was I felt like, well, I don't have a right. I don't have a right to have an opinion about it. I was very angry about the wars, but I don't have a right, I thought, because I wasn't there. And, uh, and I was very encouraged, um, you know, by Kevin, by Jan, by everybody else involved in the film who was a veteran to, to, yes, you should take interest. You should have an opinion. And this collaboration was, was this, was building this bridge between the civilian world and the veteran world, whatever that may mean, um, such that there is this clear communication and there are commonalities, like Jan was was illustrating. I mean, there's so much trauma in our world, so much of it we have in common, much more than we realize. So in a way, look, the film stands as a, as a kind of a testament to the fact that such collaborations can happen and, and should happen and, and to encourage and invite 
um, audiences to 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 experience it that way. You know, you said something key there. You said that uh, that you were got the word, but you feel you have a right. And I believe that most people in principle and uh, here in the United States are against are against these wars, but they feel that their voices, they feel they don't have a right. Um, same thing about it, you know, like you said earlier, because it's personalized to this individual, you know, you know, it's, it's tied to a person now, and it's, it's, and it's theme as, um, it's not polite to say mm-hmm. something because, you know, it's going to offend this person because, you know, how, you know, America people are very tied to their jobs, you know, and given that, given that we are in the job becomes their, they, their kind of their character now, and given that, that in the military, we have this, what is, what is called a volunteer military, but it's also, it's a contract military. You know, people have to sign a contract and they go in and, uh, um, and so it become, it becomes a job now. and, you know, so it wasn't, it's not, it wasn't like a uh, generation when you had, you had what they call the lifers, you know, where, where people that were, were in the contract, but you have also people who were recruited, who were, who were uh, not recruited, but, uh, drafted, yeah. Drafted. You know, so it created like two different armies, you know, um, so it was okay. It was okay. It was okay to, to be vocal about it, you know, about it against it. But today it's kind of difficult. Like you said that, you know, you feel like you don't have a right, but you, by doing this film, you know, you, you did, you did, uh, voice your opposition to this war. Yeah. And, um, there was a, there was a cool response we had in a screening in Los Angeles too. There was a. Yeah, a young woman, civilian, um, who basically expressed that, like, you know, she she didn't know until seeing the film or didn't really fully think about or appreciate that, like, the trauma that a veteran goes through is she recognizes, you know, she recognizes it as her own experience. Okay, that's the beginning of having a conversation between these two worlds that, like, are seem so separate. They're not. They're not as separate as as um you know as they may seem to be. And and she's felt as if she was suddenly allowed, you know, um, to, to ask questions and have conversations and, um, and, and was, you know, um, comforted by, by knowing that like, there are others who have similar experiences, you know, that there aren't so many lines between us all. Anyway, it was a good response. Did you, did you have any veterans that, do you have a, uh, cause I remember talking to you saying that you're trying to, to get veterans involved and, and watching this film, did you have a lot of, do you have, were you able to achieve to get more veterans to, to watch this film? Oh, sure. We've had, I mean, we've had plenty of, of, um, screenings organized with different, different, uh, places. I mean, again, it was part of the, the, the difficulty has been this, this ongoing COVID. I mean, the whole time the film has been, been available. It's, it's, um, so many of these screenings have happened remotely, but we have done it and we've done it plenty, you know? Awesome. I think this is a good place to stop. Um, any last words from you? Mm. Jen? This was one of the most exciting projects that I've participated in, and I've participated in a lot of exciting projects. Thank you. Tell you. Kevin? Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, this is not a war story create space for people with no military experience to ask uh, questions that they otherwise wouldn't be um, uh, allowed to ask or to feel like they're allowed to ask. You know, I think that's, that's where the 
thank you for your service gesture comes from. I, I think, uh, you know, so many of us veterans don't really like that gesture because it's like the person is um, sort of pushing their, their, um, their perspective onto you and they're sort of framing the conversation before you can have the conversation. But this film uh, opens up space to have more difficult conversations um, than, you know, than you could otherwise have. So it was a pleasure. And I just oh, yeah. have to say I, how much I love these guys, Chan and Kevin, and and uh, how much I've I've just learned so damn much um, in this whole process has been a, you know life affirming and life changing in in some radical ways, and I have so much gratitude. Well, thank you all for joining us, and and I you know look forward to hearing more about you know the this film get. Continue to watch if you know, um, to see uh, more reaction, more conversation open up around this, this war zone. You know, and hopefully, we'll see a day when we don't have to talk about this anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah, we don't have to talk about this anymore. And, and, and uh, we can live uh, in peace, you know, with the resource that we need and, and uh, not having to join this, this war machine just to, just to join that gauntlet that, that Kevin was staying in <laughs> for, for economic security. Um, well, thank you guys. Thank you for that one. I appreciate you guys, uh, mm -hmm. you know, coming on and, and you was welcome here and, uh, um, thank you for thinking of us and yeah. Thanks for having us, uh, Giovanni. Thanks, Thanks for Giovanni. Giovanni. Thank you. Money is tight these days for everyone, especially in the lingering shadow of COVID. Penny pinching to make it through the month often doesn't give people the funds to contribute to a creator they support. So we consider it the highest honor that folks help us fund the podcast in any dollar amount they're able. Patreons is the main place to do that. And for supporters who can donate $10 a month or more, they will be listed right here as an honorary producer like these fine folks. Fahim's Everyone Dream, James O'Barr, James Higgins, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Ren Jacob, Rick Coffey, Scott Spaulding, Spooky Tooth, and the Status Quo Podcast. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great Fortress merch. We're on Twitter and Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I will not